12 verses 18 to 29. We won't be going through every, every single verse or phrase of the passage, but it will be our, our anchor passage, if you like, for today. We're continuing our series today, Love Your Church. Uh, today is our third study in the series, Love Your Church. A few weeks ago when we began the series, you remember we thought about the theme of belonging and how in the church we have a place to belong. We have the best place to belong and how the church is a family in which all of us share the same status <coughs> as firstborn sons of God. We are all welcomed into God's family when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then after that, we thought about the theme of welcoming. Uh, how is the church? We are to welcome anyone and everyone to be part of our family through faith in Christ. We're not to be uh, making distinctions based on social status or wealth or achievements or reputation. Anyone and everyone is welcome into the church in profession of faith in Christ and everyone should receive the same love and welcome and friendship once uh, having come to the church. Well, today we think together about the theme of gathering, the theme of gathering. And really at the heart of what we're considering today is the question, what is the church? What is the church? What does the church, what does that word church actually mean? And in some ways we're, we're answering that question all through the series. Uh, we're thinking about different aspects of church life. Uh, but to really focus narrowly today, that word for church that we find in the New Testament, it's the Greek word ekklesia, and it means a called out, assembled people. A called out, assembled gathering of people. A local church might well do more than simply gather together each week for worship. Most churches do a lot more than that, in fact. But the church is certainly not less than that. The church may do more than gather for worship, but the church is not less than gathering for worship. This is what is most vital. This is what makes a church a church. This has been true all through history since the very beginning. It's not just a New Testament era uh, development. Listen to what God said to Moses when he sent uh, Moses to Egypt. Exodus 3 verse 12. God said to Moses, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You shall serve God on this mountain. So the Exodus, as I mentioned earlier, was God calling his people out of Egypt, out of the world, and gathering them together for worship. And that's what the church still is today. The church is people, not buildings. People assembled together for worship. A local church may be more than that, but it cannot be less than that. Fundamentally, to have a church, you need a group of people who gather together to worship God. And I believe we've arrived at a moment when we need to restate the importance and priority of corporate worship. Even before the pandemic, the attitude of many Christians in our part of the world in sort of Western evangel evangelical Christian culture, the attitude of many Christians has pretty much been regarding worship, anything goes. And we're not living in Old Testament times anymore. We're living in the era of grace. 
Jesus has forgiven us our sin so we can come to God and worship whenever, however we like. And God will be happy just that we're worshipping him at all. Well, we do live, of course, in the era of grace. God, God does welcome us to approach him in worship through the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that worship of God is just whatever we want it to be. Notice how the writer to the Hebrews concludes the section we read, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. As gracious as God is, and that's one of the main points of this passage, in fact, that God graciously welcomes us to worship. As gracious as he is, friends, we're still warned here that care must be taken when we come to worship God. Notice the writer says that we're to offer acceptable worship to God. Well, the implication there is that there is such a thing as unacceptable worship. If a chef is preparing a great dinner for his employer and the employer warns the chef that the food has to come up to a particular level of acceptability, has to be acceptably well presented, acceptably tasty, the chef can't just throw anything together. He needs to take thought and care in what he's doing. It's the same when teachers warn their pupils that the homework needs to be acceptable. The implication is that there will be such a thing as unacceptable homework that will not, be, uh, will not be approved. Well, friends, there is such a thing as acceptable and unacceptable worship. And we're to take care when we gather for worship that we are doing things and doing particular things in particular ways that will be pleasing to our great God. And so we're thinking today about gathering, in particular gathering for worship. We're going to think together about where we gather for worship, what we do when we gather for worship, how we should gather for worship, and why we should gather for worship. And we'll be spending, uh, the first two will take more time than the second two. So let's think first of all today about where we gather for worship. Where we gather for worship. And this is really focusing on Hebrews 12 verses 18 to 24. <clears throat> All through the letter to the Hebrews, the writer deals with places and practices from the Old Testament, the priests, the sacrifices, the temple. And he shows how those things are all either fulfilled or they have been changed for the better through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the formerly Jewish Christians to whom this letter was first written, as I said earlier, they had their doubts about Jesus and the church, that they were better than what they'd had before. They were finding the adjustment to Christian worship very difficult. There were no priests in Christian worship in their very impressive looking religious clothes. There were no more holy days or holy weeks and holy festivals except for the first day of the week, which Christians were calling the Lord's Day. And that would be fine, except that on the Lord's Day, to the untrained eye, Christians didn't seem to do very much compared to what the Jews would have done when they met for worship. Christians got together in public places, or at the time this letter was written, many of them would have been gathering in private homes. 
Someone stood up and read a few chapters of scripture and explained them. They sang a few psalms, they took bread and wine, and they went home again. No sacrifices, no temple, not much it seemed to see or smell or taste or some, in some ways even to hear. And the formerly Jewish Christians are wondering, where's all the stuff? Where's all the things that make up religion and worship? And all through the letter, the writer to the Hebrews deals with all of those things. And you can take time, perhaps this afternoon or at another time, to read through the, the letter. And you'll see how he explains and how all those things are fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it all really comes to a climax here in chapter 12. Because here in chapter 12, the writer takes what most Jewish people would have considered the greatest worship service in history. And he shows how any Christian worship service is better. For the Jews, the greatest worship service in history was the one that took place at Mount Sinai. God leads his people out of Egypt. They escape from Pharaoh. They're brought to the foot of this mountain where God is going to come and meet them and speak to them. And for the Jews, even centuries later, what could be better than that? God speaking, meeting with his people all gathered together. This was the most amazing, powerful, wonderful moment in their history. But the Jews had forgotten a few things about Mount Sinai. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. See what he's saying here, friends? He's saying that, yes, what an incredible thing that God came and spoke to his people at Mount Sinai. But let's not forget, everything about Mount Sinai was like one big hazard sign. It was like a big red warning light. Don't dare come any closer to God. You cannot, you must not, you will die if you do. The Bible makes clear elsewhere, and the letter to the Hebrews in fact deals with this in passing. Uh, the Bible makes clear that there were angels present on Mount Sinai. Uh, the people perhaps didn't see them because of the smoke, but they were there. You might ask, well, what were the angels doing on Mount Sinai? One of the things they were doing, friends, was they were the ones blowing the trumpets. They were warning the people. The trumpet blast on Sinai was not like some beautiful concert that you go to hear a, a brass band or an orchestra playing today. Uh, it wasn't some beautiful music to listen to. The trumpets being blasted on Sinai were like a police car siren or an ambulance. The message of them was, get out of the way. Even Moses, verse 21, the greatest meekest most godly man in all the world were told trembled with fear on mount sinai sinners dare not come any closer to a holy god with nothing standing between them that was the message of sinai friends that there's you can only come so close and then you dare not come any closer and all through the old testament that gap between sinners and a holy God 
was emphasized in the religion of the, of the Israelites and the Jews. The priests, the sacrifices, the holy of holies, the, 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 the room that only one man could enter one day a year. All of it was emphasizing the distance, friends. And so the writer here is saying, yes, Sinai was an awesome, incredible moment in history, but it was also terrifying. People trembling in fear. A mountain covered in darkness, trumpets blasting out a warning. Distance having to be kept between a holy God and a sinful people. And the writer is saying, don't be tempted to look back with rose-tinted glasses at Mount Sinai. Yes, an incredible, important moment in your history. But instead of looking back at Sinai, the writer tells them about another mountain here. Not a physical mountain that we climb or stand at the foot of, but a mountain that we climb, if you like, every time we gather for worship with God's people. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, he says, to innumerable angels and festal gathering. What he's saying, friends, is that as Christians, the place that we go to worship each and every time we gather together is a heavenly place. It is Mount Zion. It is no less than the heavenly throne room of God himself and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer here is saying, do you like the idea of worshiping with angels? Will you have the opportunity to worship with more angels than you can count every single week? And they're not blaring trumpets to warn you off. They're actually angels who are throwing a party of celebration. That's what he means by angels in festal gathering. He says the angels in heaven today are celebrating as we gather for worship. He says you've come to the assembly. That's the word I mentioned at the very beginning. Ecclesia, the church. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's believers in heaven today, friends. Christians who have already died and gone to glory. Firstborn sons of God as we are. Friends, what he's saying here is that when we gather for worship as we are right now and at other times as well, that we are, if you like, doing, we, we are in fact doing the, the same thing that saints and angels in heaven are doing at the very same moment. We are coming before the throne of Jesus Christ. We are coming because of his sacrifice, his sprinkled blood. And we are joining our hearts and our mouths together with the angels and the believers in heaven, worshipping God not on a physical mountain, but on a spiritual mountain. That's what we're doing in Dromor, Dromara, Bambridge, Lisburn, wherever we are when we come together for worship. The closest that heaven and earth come to touching each other, friends, is on the Lord's day when we gather together for worship. I remember speaking to someone once who was remarking on this and saying of the, the wonderful comfort it was having recently lost a believing loved one. Uh, the, the wonderful joy it brings to think that on the Lord's day, when, when we come together as the church, 
We're doing the same things as our loved ones departed and in glory are doing in heaven. And of course, if need be, if we are in our living rooms in a group of two or three or four, if we need to be there for whatever reason, we're also coming to the throne room in heaven. And yes, it doesn't matter whether we're in an an assembly hall or in a a so-called church building. Friends, the important thing to realize is that as often as possible, we should want to be together with as many people of God as we can to worship God's great name, because this is what we are doing. We are gathering up into heaven itself, spiritually speaking. Some of you live in sight of mountains not far from your home. You can see the Dramara Hills or the Mourns. Those beautiful, majestic mountains, proud and tall in the morning sunshine. Well, each time you look at those mountains, remember that when God's people meet, we are climbing a spiritual mountain. We are straining with all our heart for a glimpse and a taste of heaven as we join our voices together in praise and our hearts together to listen to God's word. And unlike at Mount Sinai, friends, we are welcome to come right into the presence of God himself because Jesus Christ has finished all the work that the Old Testament system required. There are no more trumpet blasts. There is no more smoke or fire or shaking to warn us off. Instead, because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we are welcome to come and to worship God on Mount Zion together. So that's where we gather for worship. But secondly, I want us to think about what we are to do when we gather for worship. What happens or what should happen when we gather for worship? Much of what I'm about to say is very familiar to us. In fact, some of it, each of them could be a sermon in themselves. I'm just going to go through this fairly briefly. But first of all, friends, when we gather for worship, God speaks to us. When we gather for worship, God speaks to us. The reason the people gathered at Sinai was to hear what God had to say to them through his servant Moses. And as Moses was relaying God's word, well, first of all, the people heard the Ten Commandments, uh, which God himself spoke, and then Moses relayed the rest of God's law to God's people. And as every word was spoken, the people were receiving more of God's word for the first time. Well, we today, of course, have God's full and final word, the Bible, in our hands. And we gather together primarily to hear what God has to say to us from that word. If you're ever sitting in a worship service and it takes longer than 30 minutes for the preacher to say, please turn in your Bibles, I hope you start feeling very twitchy. I always start feeling very twitchy if I'm, in, if I'm in that situation. I'm like, right, when are we going to open our Bibles? God's word is what drives the church. God's word is what nourishes the church. It is central and foundational and critical to everything else. The Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life, writes some of his very last words to a young pastor called Timothy. And he doesn't say to Timothy, make sure and get an attractive looking building as useful and uh, enjoyable as it can be to have good buildings. He doesn't say, make sure and get a bunch of great musicians or make sure there's something for the old folk and something for the kids and a day for this and a day for that. 
No, he says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. That is Paul's last will and testimony, if you like, for young pastors. Of everything else you could do or could get asked to do, don't fail to do this. Preach the word. And preaching is not like giving a presentation to your work colleagues or even like teaching a class in school. There are some elements of it that might overlap with those things. But those things are primarily about passing on information. Preaching is about bringing people to their God and saying, Behold your God. Here's what he's like. Here's what he has done. Here's how much he loves you. Here's the one who will judge you. Here's what he says to you. Tony Moretta says in his book, Love Your Church, if the preacher is truly saying what God has said in his word and declaring what God has done in his son, then the preacher is bringing you an authoritative, life-changing word of good news. The authority of the preacher, he says, doesn't come from his age or experience, but from the fact that he is the one teaching from the Bible. We can listen to announcements and interviews and children's talks and videos about good causes that we can and should support. We can do all of that at other times, friends. Our gatherings should be first and foremost because we want to hear what God speaks to us through the reading and preaching of his word. And so when we gather, we hear God speak to us. But secondly, when we gather, we speak and sing to God. We hear God speak to us. And we speak and we sing back to God. Of course, that's referring to prayer and to singing. Um, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, I read it earlier as our call to, call to worship. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Paul says something very similar in Colossians 3, verse 16. Now there's a lot we could get into here, but suffice to say that we believe that those words of Paul's direct us to sing the Psalms. As we know them, the 150 Psalms in corporate worship. Genuine Christians uh, will say when they hear that verse, well there you go, Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why don't you RPs and and other reform-minded churches, why don't you sing hymns and songs as well as Psalms? Like every part of God's word, friends, we have to consider what Paul's words originally meant and what Paul intended by them, rather than putting our understanding of those words on top of them. And the words Paul uses there for hymn and spiritual song, as well as psalms, those are all words used to describe what we call the 150 psalms collected together in the Old Testament. Those were all words used to describe the psalms in the Greek version of the Old Testament that Paul and many of the early Christians would have used. Uh, 67 of the Psalms were called Psalms in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Five of them were called hymns and 36 of them were entitled songs in the Greek Psalter. The Hebrew Bible, which is of course the the original version of the Old Testament language-wise, it also used these three words, Psalms, hymns and songs, to refer to the whole book of the Psalms. 
And that's not just an RPE putting an interpretation on it that suits our convictions. Just this past week, uh, Christopher Ash, who is not a Reformed Presbyterian, he wrote an, an article for the Gospel Coalition. Uh, the article, interestingly, was called Be Brave, Sing the Psalms. Um, I'd probably prefer to say Be Biblical and Sing the Psalms. But anyway, um, in his article, uh, he, he addressed this as well. He said that these three words all refer to what we call the 150 Psalms. Not only that, but throughout the New Testament, the apostles constantly quote and refer to the Psalms as they explain who Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, Peter does that, for example, in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. It's full of references to the Psalms. Uh, In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus himself says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, specifically, must be fulfilled. The Psalms are all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Jesus himself has said so. But we don't just sing the Psalms because they're about Jesus. We also sing them, Paul says here, to encourage each other. In singing the Psalms, we are using God's word in song to encourage each other. He says, notice he says in Ephesians 5 that we are addressing one another. He says in Colossians chapter 3 that we are teaching one another when we sing the Psalms. We look around the room, we see other people singing the same truths from God's word that we are singing. Truths about our pain, our sin, our saviour. And it encourages us and it does us good. Tony Moretta says sometimes you need to sing yourself out of the dumps. Sometimes you need to sing for the sake of your struggling church family or for your unbelieving friend who came with you. Friends, we play a part in proclaiming God's word when we sing the Psalms in corporate worship. So when we gather, we we hear God speak to us. We speak and we sing to God. And then the last thing that we do when we gather is we are cleansed by God and we enjoy communion with God. We are cleansed by God and we enjoy communion with God. And I'm referring here to the two sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper that Jesus has given to the church. We'll be thinking much more about baptism in a couple of weeks time, Lord willing. But baptism is a picture, of course, of God cleansing the sinner from sin. Uh, The Lord's Supper is a picture of Christ communing with us because of his sacrifice. We are able to come in. And enjoy fellowship with him through his body and blood. I mentioned a few weeks ago that inviting someone to eat and drink with you is a clear indication of, of friendship. That they're, they're welcome into your, into your life, into your dwelling place. And the Lord Jesus in providing a meal for us, as simple as it is, welcomes us to be with him. We remember his body and the bread, his blood and the wine. And we remember his sacrifice for us and the covenant that he has created with us. And we also, when we take bread and wine, we we look forward to the return of Jesus. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. And so the Lord's Supper is not just looking back. It's also looking forward to being seated at the table with Christ in glory. 
So friends, these are the the few and the simple things, the means of grace, we would call them, uh, that God commands us to do in worship. We listen to God speaking to us. We speak and sing in response to God. And we have these two beautiful pictures of God's work, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we believe that since God has expressly commanded us to do these things, that it is really these things and these alone that we should be doing when we come together for worship. So we've thought about where we gather. We've thought about what we do when we gather. Thirdly, and more briefly, how should we gather for worship? How should we gather for worship? And this goes back to the the passage from Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 28. The end of verse 28 says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. He says at the start of verse 28, let us be grateful. So friends, our worship should be marked by gratefulness, by reverence, and by awe. Gratefulness, reverence, and awe. Should there be joy in our worship? Of course there should be. You can't miss the joy that comes out in many of the psalms that we sing. Sing to the Lord, make a joyful noise, the psalmist says. But joy and reverence are not polar opposites. Joy and reverence should go together. And this is the qualifier in some ways, friends, of what I was just saying about the things that we are to do. We might be doing all the right things, but what is our attitude as we do them? We might be singing what we believe to be the words that God wants us to sing. But what is the attitude of our heart as we sing them? Are we thinking about them? Are we engaged with them? Are we singing from the heart and not just from our mouths. Reverence, thoughtfulness, gratefulness should mark our worship. We're not here, friends, for entertainment. We're not here to please ourselves or put on an impressive show to outsiders. We are coming to Mount Zion, to a holy God, to the eternal, perfect God, and we're coming to hear what he has to say to us. That being the case, we need to prepare ourselves to come to worship. I think that's a big part of what it means to come reverently, that we have come prepared, that we haven't come in a rush, last minute, thoughtless, that our worship is something we have prepared for. When we consider how much preparation we put into all kinds of other events in our lives, sometimes compared with how much preparation goes into attending worship, We should be ashamed of ourselves. Adults, mums and dads, men and women, what's the one thing that we want the day before a big event? Some big event in work or uh, in our children's lives, whatever it may be. We want an early night, don't we? We want a good night's sleep. So how late do we stay up on Saturday nights? How well rested are we before we rise on Sabbath morning to climb Mount Zion? And come into the presence of angels and the souls of the righteous made perfect into the throne room of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Boys and girls, pay special attention just for a moment. Are you obeying your mums and dads on a Saturday night or on a Sunday morning? When they tell you to go to bed, are you going or are you arguing? 
And when, they tell you, and when they tell you to get ready on a Sunday morning, are you getting ready? Or are you annoying your brother or sister or playing with some game or toy? Boys and girls, your mum and dad are getting you ready to climb a mountain, to come to listen to what God has to say and to come and to sing praise to God with his people. So listen to them, boys and girls, and obey them. We're to come with reverence and awe. At the very least, that should mean that we take time to prepare and to think about the God to whom we come. And a wonderful way as well to prepare for corporate worship is to come and to pray. Uh, and we've begun our, our, our prayer meetings before each service again, which is a wonderful encouragement. And that's a good way as well to prepare our hearts in reverence and awe to worship our God. So that's how we should gather for worship. And then finally this morning, why we should gather for worship. Why we should gather for worship. And this is verses 26 to 29 of the passage. If Jesus has fulfilled all the demands of the law and there's no trumpets or smoke or fire to stop us from coming to God and worship today, why is there any need for reverence and fearfulness even? Why isn't it just anything goes when it comes to worship? Well, look at the last, look at verse 26. At that time, that's the time of Sinai, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And that description, friends, of, of God sending Christ to come and, and shake the earth, speaking, of course, about the return of King Jesus, the final judgment. Mount Sinai shook on that day that God met with his people, but one day the whole earth, and even the sky above us will be shaken. And the picture here is of things that are not eternal, things that will not last forever being, being shaken, being, dis, being uh, stirred up and ultimately destroyed. And on that day, there will be no more opportunity for sinners to keep their distance from God. Instead, if they have not repented of sin through Jesus Christ, they will be consumed by the wrath of God, punished forever for their sins. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Some of you here today or listening in online today have perhaps been doing that for long enough. You have heard God speaking to you and you have been refusing God. And someday you will have your last opportunity to repent of sin and come and worship God through the blood of Jesus Christ as the writer mentions in verse 24. Today you are welcome to come. Through the sacrifice that Jesus has made, he cleanses us, he sprinkles us clean through his body and blood, and we come and we worship God through him. But if we refuse this gracious invitation, then someday Jesus Christ is going to come and shake everything. And he will punish those who have not taken up the invitation to come. And knowing this is what should infuse our worship friends with reverence and awe. Our God is gracious, but he is not to be messed with. He is patient, but one day his patience will run out. And so are you today, dear friend, are you really part of the church? 
Yes, you're here physically at least or listening in from some other place, but do you belong to Jesus Christ? Is it your greatest joy and anticipation in life to worship him in reverence and awe with his people? Do you look forward each Lord's Day to ascending Mount Zion, gathering together with the saints on earth and the saints and angels in heaven, giving thanks and praising God for what he has done? Or are you, in a sense, living for the worship of someone or something else, your team, your job, yourself? That someone or something will one day be shaken and ruined and gone, and only Christ and his people and his kingdom will remain. And so, friends, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen.